This is Dr. Richard Schuster, host of the Daily Helping Podcast and CEO of Your Success Insights. And I connected with Pablo at PodFest Expo in Orlando back in March 2020. And you need to connect with him too, because he is awesome. Number one, everybody should have somebody named Pablo in their life. Number two, he just has a strong, passionate heart for helping people achieve the success that they want to. He's got a brilliant mind for business. He's kind, he's caring, and frankly, he's a lot of fun. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, in my walks, every man I meet is my superior in some way, and in that, I learn from him. This means every single person you ever interacted with has done something slightly different than every single other person and therefore has something to teach you. And you, my friend, have something to teach them. This means every conversation you have is both a chance to learn something and a chance to make an impact. Every networking event or conference you walk into is both a library and your stage. Your network is your personal Google and you are a part of everyone's Wikipedia. My name is Pablo Gonzalez, and I am your Chief Executive Connector. Follow me as we meet people in my walks. Find out what we can learn from them, what they've learned from others, and what made them want to connect so you can learn to gain and give value to others in all of your interactions. I am terrible at asking for stuff, but if you want to do me a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Let me know what you've learned from each episode, or at the very least, Hit me up if I can ever be of service or any kind of value to you. Now, without further ado, let's get connected. Welcome back to the Chief Executive Connector podcast. I am your host and Chief Executive Connector, Pablo Gonzalez. And today on the show, we have a remarkable person, probably the most famous or influential person that I've had on so far, and that is Dr. Richard Schuster who is a clinical psychologist. He's a keynote speaker. He's CEO of Your Success Insights and the host of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster, Food for the Brain, Knowledge from Experts, Tool to Win at Life, which is a regularly downloaded podcast in over 150 countries. His mission is to help people become the best versions of themselves and as as a result, make the world a better place. He is a sought-after media expert and now he is hanging out with me. Thank you, doctor. And I like to describe him as if Tony Stark and Mother Teresa had a baby, I think it could be Dr. Richard Schuster and the impact that's going to be put in this life. Welcome, Richard. How are you doing, man? Oh, my God. That is, that is a lot of pressure to live up to. So if Mother Teresa and Tony Stark had a baby, I would hope I would look more like Tony Stark than Mother Teresa. But uh, an honor to be here on the show. Really had an awesome conversation when you and I first connected. And so I think we're going to have a lot of fun today and hopefully add a lot of value to people listening to this. I totally agree, man. I've been uh, I've been wanting to reconnect with you since the moment we left uh, Orlando, but we're, we'll get into that a little bit later. I'd like to start this show with everybody trying to show off this thesis that I have. That is, people connect easiest when you're either going to add a, a piece of value to their life or you share some kind of vulnerability with someone. And I know you're going to add a ton of value here in the conversation we have. So if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you, you know, what is... What is something that you've struggled with in the past or what's the hardest part of being Dr. Richard Schuster right now? I'll answer them both. And actually, before I do, science is very much on the side of your thesis, Pablo, because we learn and retain information more effectively 
when there is an emotional connection to that, it actually stores in a different part of our brain. Uh, so we're going to have all kinds of nerdy neuroscience here throughout our, our next hour. So certainly fear uh, in the past, uh, by, you know, fear held me back in, in a lot of ways and really limited me from achieving some of my dreams. And I know that sounds cliche, but as we get into the story, that, that will make a lot of sense to people. Uh, now, I, I struggle with something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs and executives do, is that when you start achieving success, you, know, you create a business model and you know, you, whatever, whether it's a product or a service and you get it out there, and then there's opportunities everywhere and everybody is kind of pounding on your door and it's a good problem to have. But I, I historically, suffer from shiny object syndrome. Maybe there's a little bit of parakeet DNA in there with Tony Stark and Mother Teresa. And I'm kind of looking around and like, oh, this opportunity and that opportunity. And sometimes it's hard to really drown out that noise and just be very, very focused on what keeps you on brand, on mission, and, and really uh, helps propel whatever you're trying to do business-wise because it is so easy, man, with LinkedIn and there's 10 million people that everybody wants to connect with you and offer you this and that. And and it's really, you know, as you start achieving success, it's really critical to be very focused uh, on what it is that you need to do. And I, I struggle with that because I wake up every morning and there's probably more emails than I can read from people that either want to come on my show or want me to go on their show or want me to do this, that, or the other. So balance, balance and focus, I would say. Man, I can empathize with both of those things. Um, you know, as somebody who is into the science and the data and all that stuff, have you done any digging into how much this problem has been exaggerated by how the world has changed? Or is this a problem that has just always been universal and we are struggling with it based on this iteration of it? Is, is that a no. clear question? It's mostly clear, and if there was misunderstanding, the fault is mine. So are we talking about with difficulty focusing? Is that the question? Yeah, man. You know, so I'll explain, right? Like I, like I think of, like, that's my biggest weakness, right? I, and, and, and sometimes I think to myself, it's like, dude, if I would have... If I would have been around, if my career would have started 30 years earlier, before email and, and, and before the ability to click on a link and go on the World Wide Web, much less social media, right? Would I find myself focusing easier or will I, because this is my shiny object syndrome, will, will there be something else that would have taken that place? It's, a, it's, a, it's certainly interesting to think about it. Uh, in terms of what science is showing overall, that we have been trending as a society towards having a shorter degree of focused attention, meaning that previously we could sit and attend to something and now our attention span is, is about three seconds, more or less. So what will grab your attention and actually do you keep it there or do you move on to the next thing? And I've read that a goldfish has an eight-second attention span. So we are now we have devolved to where you know the fish that you might flush down a toilet after it dies from you take it home from a fair. Like we're we're less focused than those guys, and so there's a lot of reasons for that. The, the biggest reason is the social media, and the technology has basically kind of remapped our brains in a sense to where we are inundated with so much data that. We don't stay on any one thing very long. And so a lot of people, and, and this is just a focus thing in general, there is a, a misconception you'll hear people talk about multitasking. I'm a great multitasker. I can, you know, I can cook three things and 
you know, iron my pants and do all these things at the same time. The data is very clear on this is that uh, there's no multitasking is a myth. And so it's really interesting how you know, we, we have bought into this concept. Almost people who are multitaskers wear this as a badge of honor, right? Like I can focus on 50 things at once. You can't, you can't. And, and so when we do have this one thing that we want to focus on, it's important that we kind of stack what we're supposed to be doing early on. So if you have critical tasks that require the most brain power, this is how I arrange my day. I arrange my day first by what, you know, what's top priority. Like if I don't respond to it, you know, somebody's going to light me on fire kind of a thing. But then beyond that, it's what takes the most brain power to what's essentially mindless. Because the, the data is also quite clear that we only have so much in the tank. And it doesn't get recharged necessarily by taking a 20-minute power nap. And, you know, I mean, all of that stuff is great and doing your yoga and meditation. I do all that stuff too. That helps you manage stressors more so than you might be able to otherwise during the day. But the truth is, you've got a battery every day. And, you know, when it's depleted, it's depleted. So arrange your schedule, arrange your tasks, arrange your day around the most challenging things first and then it, it makes you more efficient because you're able to really focus, attend, and knock out those things initially. And then when you get to the stupid mindless stuff, come you know two, three o'clock, no big deal because you know even though you're kind of running on on fumes, it doesn't matter as much because it's you're, you're not using critical reasoning or any of those those things. Free science, free science, <laughs> Pablo. <laughs> makes a lot of sense, man. So I know that you are you have become an expert in the neuroscience of altruism. And I want to get to that, but how do we go from, how did you get here? Can you give me, can you give me your oh God. Story a little bit? Yeah. You know, and it's, it, I actually smirked during the introduction as you, as you mentioned the Tony Stark thing, because I just did a TEDx and the topic is called, it's called on becoming a superhero, the power and science of altruism. And I actually spoke about the comparison of myself in my early 20s to Tony Stark. And so, uh, but not the, not the Tony Stark who heroically saved the world, the jerk Tony Stark, uh, who before he was Iron Man. So when I was in my early before 20s- Before he met Mother Teresa and followed. Before he met Mother Teresa, before he, before he was almost blown up and then you know, taken by terrorists into a cave. So we both almost- almost died, but in very different ways. So uh, I, I bid on in my early 20s, a government contract with the Department of Defense with a, with a couple guys that I knew from an IT contract. I was working in IT. I, I left. I got an undergraduate degree in psychology. I swore vehemently at the bar with a few of my friends on the last day of undergrad that I would never set foot in a classroom ever again. And I, and I got a job in IT because in the late 90s, if you could chew gum and code HTML at the same time, somebody was going to throw money at you. And that's, that's how I get into that industry. And so we bid on this contract with the DOD. And it was to secure the medical records for the army to create into this encrypted pipe between two military bases, one in Maryland and one in San Antonio, Texas. And so uh, we applied. Nothing happened for a little bit. And then weeks later, this email shows up. I thought it was a joke. I actually thought it was a joke. We won and I had no business winning this thing. But all of a sudden now I'm big time, right? Now, it wasn't billions of dollars, wasn't even millions of dollars, but it was, it was for the age that I was and the promise that this was going to bring because it opens doors. Once you get a foot in the door with the government, then you can kind of expand your, your wings, so to speak, and, and sure. get into other opportunities. And IT was huge at that point in time. This was before the first tech crash. And so 
I immediately began having these delusions of grandeur about the Schuster empire, all of these incredible things I was going to have in my life. I would go home, Pablo, and I would get on eBay and I would look up private islands. Did you know you can get a private island on eBay? But you didn't. You now. can. You I sure can. <laughs> and so, and I was, I was, I was going to name an island after myself. I was going to have Schuster Land. I was going to figure out how to make it a country. I was going to have my own private jet. Like ridiculous stuff, right? Like you know, to hear me say it now and it comes out of my mouth, it sounds ridiculous. But uh, that's what I believed was happening, and I became incredibly focused, Pablo, on having stuff for the sake of having stuff. You know, I, I'm not. Listen, if you're into boats and cars or watches, whatever you're into, I am not at all bashing you for that uh, because that's your passion. But I just wanted stuff so people thought I was a badass. And that's the way it was for me for a little while. And then on a Saturday, as I was driving to have dinner with a cousin, I was in a near fatal car accident in which I broke my spine. I nearly tore every ligament in my neck. Uh, had a number of severe internal injuries, and by all rights should be dead. And so what's really interesting about the brain is that we know, and we have research on this from soldiers, and there's all kinds of evidence that supports us. You know, we see in the movies that when when people tell you that you're going to die, your life flashes before your eyes, and that's not really what happens. For some people, they experience something called tachypsychia. And that's a phenomenon in in which your perception of time, the brain slows your perception of time down, kind of like Neo in the Matrix, really, really, really slow, like bullet time slow. And so maybe just what was a few seconds from when, you know, I'm making my left hand turn and I look up and I see this car screaming at me and I know I'm toast, right? It wasn't begging to God, oh, please let me live. And tomorrow I'm going to give presents to orphan boys or girls. Like I was dead. And so, you know, from impact to airbag deployment, to when I crashed into a telephone pole, three seconds, maybe. But it it felt v- much, much longer to me. And I'm sitting here having this full-on conversation with myself that, oh my God, my mom and dad are going to get this call. And they're out with friends on a Saturday night. I'm dead. What a senseless, stupid death. And my brother and my friends and uh, then I, I was thinking about, and literally as I'm having these thoughts, I'm seeing the windshield just shattered and little bits of the windshield are floating in the air in slow motion. And I look down and my center console is just crushing into my side. I don't feel any pain. It's fascinating, like right? Like to talk about it now, no pain in this moment. But I mean, I can see my ribs being crushed by this thing. And, um, and I'm just having like this reflection on my life and what I've accomplished. And I'm realizing, man, like all this crap that I've been, so heavily focused on is not coming with me. doesn't matter the fact that I only had two payments left on my car. doesn't matter the watch I'm wearing, all of these, you know, grandiose ideas of stuff I was going to buy. None of it mattered. And I was really kind of ashamed of who I had become because that's not how I was raised. My parents were, you know, a phenomenal example on doing the right thing and being humble. And so, you know, surprise, I lived, right? Like I'm here. Uh, but, you know, it, it took me months to recover from that. And that was really the catalyst that started me on this journey. So, you know, it wasn't one of these things, Pablo, where I, you know, shook my fist in the hospital bed and said, you watch God from, from now on, I'm just going to do good things for people. In fact, it was, it was the opposite. Uh, You know, whereas I mentioned in the very beginning, you had, you had that ask fear. Like I, I went back to work, like I, I recovered. And then I went back to the same role that I had, you know, running this company. And I was miserable. 
And every day that I was there, each passing day, I was like, man, this sucks. And I, I, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I know it's not this. But I never had the courage to walk away because I was so afraid of what people were going to think about me when all the people I had told how successful I was going to be, the next Bill Gates, the next, you know, whatever, none of that was going to be true because by walking away from this company, it was admitting failure. And so I actually stuck it out in that position for two years. And it got to a point where I was going to immunologist to figure out, because I was physically ill. And, you know, obviously now through the lens of a psychologist, I recognize, but uh, I was making myself ill just because I was so miserable in my life. And, you know, we make decisions oftentimes based on pain. When the pain is great enough, then we, we have the psychological energy to try and make, make pain. Like a lot of times we know we need to lose weight, but then we still go to Chick-fil-A or Donald's or whatever. You know, so, but for me, the pain got to a point where I was done and I walked in and I told my business partners, I'm done. You know, I go from 80 hours a week to zero. All the potential deals that were in the pipeline, a number of them were really kind of substantial deals, gone, out the door. I quit. And, and now I, I'm done working, but I have no idea what the hell I'm supposed to do. And, and so I, I spent the next several months sitting at home, wallowing, kind of in regret, terrified, like, what am I going to do? I had some money, you know, so it's not like I, I was in trouble. Like I go for a long while and just hang out. But, you know, it's interesting how, how a moment can kind of change your life. And for me, uh, un as unbelievable as it sounds, it was at the grocery store. You know, I tell people if Instacart existed back then, I don't know what the hell I'd be doing today. But I went to the grocery store and, and I just happened to overhear these two women talking about their teenage daughters posting bikini pics and stuff on social media. And I, and I interjected, which also, you know, if you know me, like I don't usually butt into people's conversations, you know, at the supermarket, but I, in this instance I did. And I, and I said, Hey, you know, I've got this background in, in network security. And let me tell you a few things you need to be thinking about to keep your kiddo safe online. And I freaked them out. I wasn't trying to, I was trying to really be helpful. And they're like, Oh my God, uh, I'm going to do this right away. And I'm going to tell my husband, Hey, you know, where will you please come speak to our school's PTA? And I, and I said, all right. You know, so I go. And now, you know, I'm standing in front of a bunch of parents and I'm having this dialogue and giving them, I, I made a PowerPoint presentation and cute slides and like, you know, funny pictures. And like, I was just having fun. I didn't have an agenda. I wasn't trying to sell anything. I was just, just talking to people. And then this guy from the audience comes up to me who was on the cybercrime unit of the police department, the local police department. And he said to me, you know, you, you're a really good speaker. You can say things as a civilian that we can in law enforcement. And would you, you know, collaborate with us? So now all of a sudden I'm on a speaking tour, right? And, and at one of these opportunities uh, at a school, a guidance counselor says, hey, will you mentor a kid? We don't have any male mentors. We have lots of female mentors. And so I did. And they gave me this kid in the seventh grade and his parents were getting divorced and he was biting. You shouldn't bite when you're 13, right? And so um, I, I get to meet with this kid week after week for two years and see him change. And, and I'm not so bold as to say I'm 100% why. Like he, he made the change, but I was part of that process. And then I'm like, okay, so the things that have made me really have been making me happy, mentoring this kid and speaking to parents and just trying to help people. And that's when I really started connecting the dots for me that I get my fulfillment through helping others. So because of that, that gave me the courage to apply to graduate school. I got a master's in social work, then went on to get my doctorate in clinical psychology. And so that was probably the longest answer you've ever had to that question. But that is uh, what got me to you know, more or less what I'm doing today. Okay. 
All right. That's interesting, man. So I want to deconstruct some of that stuff, but I want to sure. deconstruct it in the scope of, of what you're doing now, right? So mm-hmm. you, you realize that you want to serve others. You got a doctorate in clinical psychology, and now you've just launched this initiative with your Success Insights. Can you tell me a little bit about your company right now and, and, sure. and what you just launched? Yeah. So you know, a, as a clinical psychologist, and one of the things that, that I did almost exclusively was assessment. I did very little therapy. And, and that's strange for psychologists. Most psychologists gravitate more towards the therapy. And I really liked the assessment piece because I like science. I like data and I like numbers. And so the psychological assessment industry, if you've not been exposed to it, and, and most haven't, is really greedy. It, it's basically two players, in my opinion, a monopoly for the most part. And it's these two players and it's... Um, probably 85 to 90% of the revenue in a $7 billion industry. And what I didn't like about these two particular players is they, again, tremendously greedy. All of the assessments tended to be pejorative for the most part. Like they couldn't, the way the system is set up, they, they can't really exist unless they can find something wrong with you because then there can be a diagnostic code that can be billed to an insurance company. It's like the cycle. Um, I didn't like the lack of inclusivity for these assessments. I didn't like the fact that uh, most people who needed access to them wouldn't be able to get access to them, couldn't afford them, that you would need to pay somebody like me three to $5,000 to make it make sense to you. And I just wanted to be a disruptive force in this space akin to Michael, what Michael Dell did to the PC industry and turn it on its ear. And so I wanted to create a company where all of our instruments had the following components. Number one, focused on what's awesome about people, as well as giving them a roadmap to improve things that are problematic. Number two, uh, anybody can afford them. Our most expensive instrument is $50. Number three, I wanted them to be self-scoring and self-interpreting so that you could read it yourself and it would make sense and you didn't have to scratch your head and be confused and then go hire somebody expensive to do this for you. Number four, I wanted to be able to build this whole platform in a way that that coaches and consultants and therapists and people in these very different spaces that I could reward them financially for helping us help others. Nobody had ever created a company that did all of those things in this space before. And so that's why we created your success insights. And uh, we're in a number of verticals that, that I'm very proud of uh, pr- principally peak performance. And so peak performance for people in the corporate space, optimizing success in wellness in for consumers, for working parents, for entrepreneurs, uh, we have instruments involving trauma, which we're very proud of. So, uh, trauma for we have actually have an instrument that that is a trauma tool for first responders, which we've been developing long before anybody had ever heard the word COVID. It was just really interesting timing. Uh, a first responder for veteran, or excuse me, a trauma tool for veterans. We have tools for uh, addiction and recovery, uh, which we're also very proud of. And then tools for athletes. So you know, we're very proud of them. They took forever to develop the research, the algorithms, the science, but uh, they're so well received. We're so grateful for that. And it's fun. It's fun to get the feedback from people knowing how, how we're impacting them. So that was really the impetus uh, for why I wanted to create the company. And, and, I'm, and I'm very proud of the work that we're doing there. That's awesome, man. So if, if, I'm, if I'm getting this right, you said that there's two sides of it. There's assessment and therapy, right? Um, is the is the assessment kind of like setting the 
pegging the standard to then which you will be able to compare performance to? Is that, is, is that kind of the importance of the right. assessment so is establishing the ground rules? What's really cool about assessment, and again, you know, you're using assessments for different things, of course, depending on the, the situation, but for the coaches and consultants and therapists that use our powers tool, and the powers is, is really designed for this. Basically, it's designed to give you a roadmap. So if you're starting with a new client or you have a client that's kind of stuck in their business or their life, give this to them. And the power of assessments are exactly what you said. It takes the subjectivity out of providing information. You know, so if I were to say to you, you know, Pablo, I just don't think you're doing a really good job of balancing your work and your personal life. You might punch me in the face. Well, you wouldn't punch me in the face, but you, you get the point. Like there's, that's an emotionally charged statement and people tend to take those things personally. This is why I went into why I went beyond my master's to get my doctorate because master's level practitioners are not allowed legally to do assessments. It's only psychologists. And, and so when you're able instead to say, okay, Pablo, so you just took this instrument and this you know, has been normed against you know, a large sample size of individuals in your same age, level of education, gender, uh, ethnicity, and comparing you to them it really looks like you know you're having trouble balancing your time and that may be impacting your relationships it's basically saying changing the game from saying i told you from the data says and you can't get mad at data they're your answers unless you lied <laughs> answering the questions it's your data and so that's why it's so powerful because if you are whether you're a business consultant or whether you're trying to get a, a handle on your own company, having that data gives you a baseline of how, where people are doing now. You know, our, our corporate tool is, is really great because what companies are doing is they're using it to find out which employees are struggling right now because it's, it's cheaper, particularly in a COVID environment, to rehabilitate and address the issues of your existing staff than to let somebody go for poor performance, hire train and you know their replacement and and what's even more tragic is if you were to let an employee go because you didn't really know what was going on and so you know the data illuminates that to where you're able then to engage them the hr director can engage them or get them involved in eap or whatever whatever the steps are and so uh you know i mean i've been you know doing assessments in some capacity since 2007 and it is it is powerful it is extremely powerful. So the, the numbers don't lie. And so that's, that's why we created this company. But again, it's one thing like, so what, right? What if you get this instrument that says, okay, Pablo, you suck at talking to other people. Well, that's not helpful, right? <laughs> so, you know, the, the way that we created our instruments I, are- I would hope that your assessment wouldn't say that about me, just for the record. I, I, would, I would be shocked if my assessment said that about you. But you it, does say, yeah. it does say that about some people. Now, it says it in a much kinder and gentler way. Like the language we use is this is a focus area for yeah. a respondent. But then what, what happens is, is that we actually, you know, our documents produce, you know, depending on which assessment you've taken, you might get a 35-page PDF that's really custom to you and your scores and to tell you how this impacts you in terms of your parenting and in terms of your job and in terms of your entrepreneurship or ability to manage stressors. Like it's, it's cool, you know, and it's, and it's very unique. So we, we sought to create tools that really didn't exist in the marketplace and, and level the playing field in some ways and making them accessible and affordable. 
That's awesome, man. So you have this incredible perspective. If you've been doing assessments since 2007, mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to put a number to the number of assessments you've had, but I would imagine you have an enormous data set that you have observed. And while it's very easy for me to think human beings are happiest when they're of service, I know that I am when I'm doing that. I know that doing the right thing feels good, but you have a whole formulated opinion around the science of altruism. And you, you just said it, you just gave a Ted talk about that. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit of, it's not opinion. It, it is scientific fact. So Perfect. it's really interesting. You know, in, when it, when I did my doctoral dissertation in graduate school, I did it on the impact that social media has on personality functioning. And so there's a good amount of research that shows where we're going as a society because of social media. Uh, there's an increased narcissistic tendencies across Western society, most prevalent in, in younger generations, of course. But what, what we're seeing is that, you know, everything is about you showing this awesome presentation online. What, what the research, what we used to refer to this as, is the trophy case presentation. So around the year 2000, before social media was really a thing, you know, MySpace wasn't quite here yet. But Back then, that was really around the first era, late 90s, early 2000, where you were able to make a website, a custom website. They had tools that were available to consumers where you didn't have to know how to code HTML. You could just use like these web builder tools. And so then people started making personal websites, promoting themselves. And what we have found consistently is that a lot of times what we're presenting to the world is is an idealized self. It's the the selfie, if you will, that, you know, how cool do we look, you know, where you can essentially use filters to make yourself look better than you really are, thinner, taller, stronger, smarter, smileier, whatever. And so what what the data shows, which is very interesting, is that there's in many people a perception that um, we're missing out on something in life. And it actually leads to a, a decrease in satisfaction. Because what happens is you get on your Facebook and then you see your next door neighbor and he's posting pictures of the lobster he's grilling and, you know, the amazing vacations and the, you know, all this stuff. And you think to yourself, man, like my next door neighbor's life is so much better than mine. He looks happy all the time and he's having fun. And then you start to internalize that and it impacts your sense of self. When in reality, what might be going on is this guy may be posting this stuff, but he's got three cents in his bank account. And they're about to take his car away from him, or he's about to lose his house, or he and his wife haven't really spoken in three months. And so the problem with where we are as a society is that we are caught up in this feedback loop that's perpetual and self-perpetuating, in which we have to really try and show how awesome we are. So it's all about the selfies, right? And it's all about, look at me and the you know, posing. And so here's what, what we know is that we are biologically hardwired to feel good when we make a difference in the lives of others. So for anybody listening to this, if I was to pull two people out of your audience here, let's say person A, you gave them $1,000. How nice of you, Pablo. And person B gave somebody else $1,000. Then we hooked up to their heads these devices, these real-time diagnostic imaging devices. We could see what's going on in their brains. What you might be surprised to learn is that the exact same parts of the brains light up. 
and it's a, it's a part of our brain called the mesolimbic pathway. And it's this ancient, really ancient mammalian system that's associated with pleasure and reward. And so what, what we know through science is that whether we help other people or whether we are just focused on ourselves, promoting ourselves, um, we have the opportunity to feel really good if we make, if we do things altruistically. And so that's why I do what I do with my podcast is that I, I snuck a little bit of neuroscience in there to where our call to action is to commit an act of kindness every day and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag my daily helping, because I know as a scientist that if I can get you to do kind things for somebody 30 days in a row, and you're going to feel good, that's going to become habituated for you. And if I can get a whole lot of people habituated to committing acts of kindness, and then that ripples has a spiral effect, uh, that's really good for the world. So, you know, if you're listening to this, you know, I I challenge you, I challenge you today, when, when you stop listening to this podcast, pick up the phone and call somebody you haven't talked to in a long time, or donate to a charity, you know, just to not, not because you're expecting the universe is going to gift you something in return. Just do, just do it because you want to do it and pick something that you're excited about. And I promise you, you're going to feel good. You're going to feel good doing it. So um, that's a large part of my platform to be sure when I talk about that stuff. That's awesome, man. And that, you know, I can really connect all the way, all the way through to everything you're saying, right? Everything from like the the feeling of seeing other people doing stuff, making you feel less than, right? Like I, like just today, right? I'm in this WhatsApp group with a bunch of my friends that I've been friends with for 20 years. And uh, right now, they're all super into day trading, <laughs> right? Like they're just riding the market, doing all this stuff. I'm more of a long-term investor, but I'm seeing them post screenshots of their Robinhood account going up for whatever, you know, penny stock they bought. And I'm like, I feel this like lack of self-worth that I'm not taking part of this, but then I have to tell myself they're not posting when, <laughs> when, when that stock's taking a dip, right? They're only, they're only, uh, as the kids say, flexing when, when, when something is going up, right? Correct. Of course. And you, and you got to take that, the rhetoric out of your head. And then I, and then I juxtapose that with how I've gotten on my path, right? Like my whole path of community creation and being a, a, a skilled networker and a public presenter all came from getting involved in these nonprofit groups in Miami and starting these young professional groups for philanthropies in Miami. Mm. And the way that I would attract people to those groups is to say, you know, Miami is this like really flaky, flighty city where everybody is just, you know, always competing on these main things. But when you join these groups, everybody in here has passed a small test of caring a little bit more, you know, a little bit about something else that isn't just themselves, right? And, and what I found is that, that that message really attracted people and the group of people that congealed around that message tended to be a more optimistic, happier, you know, felt more fulfilled group of people than the groups of friends that I had in Miami that had always been there and had always just kind of decided that Miami is what they think it is. Right. And, and maybe that is, that's going back to that activation of that part of the brain. I guess it's like a muscle, right? So if, if you do it more often and you start getting that feedback loop going of you're involved in a cause greater than yourself, you're doing something for others, it starts, it starts paying you back in, in mood enhancements and productivity. Like what, what, what is it? How well, that's does it part of it. That, that's part of it. So there, there's another, comp- once you start 
shifting your focus to something with intentionality, there's another part of your brain that gets involved called the reticular activating system. So the RAS is really cool. So an example of this, there was there was a really good commercial from the 70s and 80s by Tootsie Roll. I don't know if you remember it. You remember it? You know, I don't know. You, okay. Wait, is it the it, owl looking the lollipop? No, that was a good one too. <laughs> it was it was the one where this kid, everything he saw was a Tootsie Roll. Like oh, yeah. like a tree, like vertical tree was in the shape of a Tootsie Roll. So what the RAS does for us is it basically intensifies our focus on whatever matters to us at that time. So here's an example. Let's say you went out today and you just felt like picking up a new car and you, you picked up, give me, a, give me a make and model of a car you want. Listen, man, I bought a Kiwi Green Honda Element in 2006 and I think it's going to play very well into your story. All right. So this is great. So um, you get your green Honda Element and so you're driving home from the dealer and all of a sudden you start noticing more Honda Elements on the road. Now, are there more Honda elements on the road just because Pablo got a Honda element? Of course not. But your brain's reticular activating system is bringing Honda elements into your awareness. So it's the same thing when we engage in acts of kindness, when we do good things. And when when we are like what you were working with these groups in Miami, you're bringing into one's awareness this consciousness, this idea of there's something bigger than just ourselves that we're helping other people. So to backtrack into your question about what's going on from a neurobiological standpoint, so a few things. Number one is that we get the release of dopamine, which is a pleasure hormone. Dopamine is good for us and makes us feel good. And then we also get the release of something called oxytocin. Oxytocin is a really cool hormone because it does several things. Number one is it fosters trust and togetherness. So we know that people with higher concentrations of oxytocin in their systems tend to have better relationships in and out of the workplace. Uh, we also know that people with a higher concentration of oxytocin actually have a stronger immune system than those that don't. They tend to be healthier. They miss fewer days at work. And so you know, there's, there's just a lot of benefits physiologically to having in your awareness and your space, your focus on, on, on helping other people. Awesome, man. So that's funny that you bring up the reticular activator because it's been reticularly activated for me. <laughs> it's, been like, it's been like three weeks since I heard, I think it was Charlie Rocket talk about the reticular activator in one of his uh, one of his things that he spoke about. And since then, it, it seems like it keeps coming up over the last three weeks, which I feel like is a very meta experience of the reticular <laughs> activator. Um, I want to get into more, more nuanced stuff here. You mentioned that right before you see this car coming on, Mm-hmm. You felt a sense of shame. Yeah. Right. Or, or, yeah. Right. Like a, a sense of shame. And then you also mentioned, which of course propelled you to change your life later on. And you mentioned that you were able to change your life later on when the pain was, was hard enough. Right. And I imagine there's data in, in the propensity for us to be more willing to change based on pain versus pleasure. Is that accurate? Yeah. Because ultimately, if something feels good, so let me back up actually. So the, the whole, the body's trying to do one thing more or less, which is maintain homeostasis, like it's a thermostat. So it likes to keep us comfortable, likes to keep us feeling happy and good, doesn't like things that make us feel unsettled. So I'm going to use weight loss as an example here. You know, I mentioned the McDonald's example earlier, but you know, you might have an awareness that you need to drop 10 pounds, for example. And so you're going to go into your, your cabinet or excuse me, your freezer and you're going to pull out a pint of ice cream and start eating it. Feels good to eat the ice cream in that moment. 
Now, you know, what, what happens when sugar enters our body? That's a whole nother discussion. But, um, you know, you're engaged in a pleasureful activity. On the other hand, if you were to have a heart attack because, you, you know, your cholesterol is so bad and your arteries are clogged and you're eating unhealthily and your doctor says to you, listen, Pablo, if you don't stop eating a pint of Ben and Jerry's a day, you're going to die. Now, all of a sudden, the fear, because, that, because what that means to people is different, right? We, we take a concept. It's kind of like money. Like money is, a, money is paper and metal, but we apply meaning to it. So the context of whatever the consequence might be is what determines the degree of motivation. So if the motivating factor is you're going to die, then you're probably going to be scared to the point where you're going to take some action and start making modifications to your life. If the consequence is, well, maybe somebody at the grocery store might make, might make a mental note that you know, you're, you're a bit overweight, you're going to keep pounding the ice cream. So fear and pain uh, are massive motivators because you know, we just, we just want to get back to normal for us. You know, we want to get back to comfortable. And, and so you know, that's why habits are so hard to change because the brain and the body do everything they can to keep you from changing those things. They just want to keep you, and it's not like a conspiracy. It sounds, you know, it almost sounds that way when I talk about it, but right. But that's why we know, you know, if you've been, if you had a bad habit for a really, really long time, um, you're not going to fix it in a week. You're going to have to, you're going to have to really be mindful about why you want to make a change. And, and the why is critically important. And you don't just say, I want to lose weight. You say, I want to lose weight because I want to be alive to watch my kid graduate high school. That's a powerful motivating factor. And then you have to build conditions and situations into your environment, into your world to minimize the risk of failing. You know, so you get rid of the pints of ice cream and you, you know, get, your, get an accountability partner and you start building an exercise schedule and you start doing things to make that shift. But you have to do it consistently. You have to do it every day. And over time, you will see the, the, the changes. But again, like the motivation is often, it's pain-based, right? Like you hear a lot of entrepreneurs who tell you that they, they quit their job or they were fired from a job and they became successful because they had no other options. They got laid off and they had this idea. And if they didn't roll with the idea, they weren't going to be able to put food on the table. That's fear, yeah. right? And so fear can be very adaptive. You know, fear isn't, fear is bad when there's no potential end to the fear or the, the, the stressor. Fear can be a very good motivator. Yeah, so if, so if pain and fear are such strong motivators, right? I mean, we're living in fear right now, right? Like yeah. from, from COVID to, yep. to race wars to, yep. to, to whatever's that, to the way the media, media uses fear as a motivator to get you to click on the, the story, right? How much of that is good for, for motivating versus at what point does that become unhealthy and how do we change that around? Like, how do we give altruism a shot as a motivator to, to, to beat out fear? Or is that even the way that we need to be looking at it? Well, I, I think that, you know, altruism should just be not necessarily a motivator, but just something we build into our lives, period. Okay. It's just part of what we do. Uh, to answer the first question, so you're right on about the media. You know, the, the media exists to sell ads, right? And the stories that make you pay attention are not Pablo rescued a kitty cat from a tree. News at eleven. It's uh, true story. I'm sure. Uh, you know, you, you've got a reputation for these kind of <laughs> things. Uh, you know, it, it's a hurricane is coming to destroy your city. 
and you better, and if you don't watch to find out the latest information, you and your family could die. That's what gets you to watch the news, right? There's a virus. If you don't watch the news at 7 a.m., 6 p.m., and 11 p.m., your family might die. That's the message. And so what's problematic as well is twofold. Number one, we live in an era where it's a 24-hour information cycle that's very customized. You can't escape it unless you make a concerted effort to. Because even if you don't watch the news, you're going to get a notification on your phone. COVID cases up 2,000%. You're going to die, right? And, and so, so the media in and of itself is a massive issue. Uh, and, and I tell people on pretty much every platform that I speak to, turn the news off. Get the notifications off your phone. Uninstall your news apps. Un- unfollow anybody in your social media feeds that is just perpetuating fear and craziness because it's a lot. And, you know, so to, to bring it back to what we were just talking about, stress in and of itself isn't a bad thing. You know, the, the body was designed, uh, you know, we've got a central nervous system and i am probably heard of fight or flight. And many people have, you know, an understanding of that. You know, we're still basically designed, you know, open the door, see a saber tooth tiger, freak out, get out of the situation everything goes back to normal. Problem is, we're now in an environment where the saber-toothed tiger is a perpetual thing. And you don't know, using COVID as an example, we have no idea when this is going to end. And so that's where it becomes dangerous because now you're in a constant state of stress and you know stress hormones like cortisol are being constantly released into your body. The more that you expose yourself to that kind of stimuli, you know, whether it's talking to people on your social media whether it's you know watching the news, like, like when we when you think about things like a virus, and I'm not minimizing the impact that this virus has had on the world, right? But it's like if you watch the news at 7 a.m., for example, and you get the update, how different is it really going to be at 6 and 11, right? It's not, yeah, but you right. know they want they want you to tune in, and so now if a hurricane's coming to your town, I'm not saying you know don't don't watch the Weather Channel or you know don't get the information you need, but you know, I've interviewed a lot of really successful influencers, and many have them. Many of them have told me they don't watch any news. I don't watch any news. Yeah, I don't either. You know, I refuse to watch the news. I don't allow it in my house. You know, I, when when my my father or my in laws come to town and they like to sit around and you know because they're retired and they just like to watch the news and complain about things, I don't allow it in my house. And so, if you remove that from your world that alone is going to improve your stress, you know, and and just then you start reaping the benefits of getting that out of your life because it's try and be grateful and scared at the same time. You can't, you know, try and be happy and outraged at the same time. You can't. So why would we expose ourselves to things that are basically designed to put us into negative emotional states? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, man. Let me, you know, that, that takes me back to the 2016 election when I just had this like, it just seems so all consuming. And that's when I just stopped watching the news. And I realized that whereas I used to think that the world hinged on every single tweet, uh, nothing really changes, right? Like I, I, I disconnected from all these WhatsApp chats that I was a part of for like three months, came back to it, and really nothing had changed. So it makes a lot of sense that the urgency that, that we're attributing to things and it's, it, you know, the, the, it's the fear talking and to, and to focus your attention on, on something more productive is really all upside. Right. So right. makes a lot of sense. All right, man, let's, 
That was heavy. Let's let's get into the more lighthearted um, part of this conversation. All right, let's do uh, it. Yeah, listen, I I like to ask everybody kind of kind of just recall how we met and what you know what 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 made you want to have an ongoing relationship with me if you don't mind me asking. Your eyes, for sure, they were just so <laughs> captivating. No, we uh, we met and uh, and it was cool because it you know it was really the last real world thing that I've done in public. Yeah. Since this virus outbreak happened. So we met uh, March 6th, I believe it was, okay. around there in Orlando, Florida at a, at a podcast conference. And uh, you were hanging out with my good friend, coach, and mentor, J.V. Crum III. And uh, we just struck up a conversation and uh, hit it off. I liked your vibe. I liked what you were doing. And I was just grateful to connect with you and, and keep in touch and happy to come on your show and have some fun. Yeah, it's great, man. Yeah, I remember we were talking, you started talking about neuroscience and assessing athletes. And I immediately went to like, oh my God, are you working on like NFL concussion syndrome and, and stuff like that? You had a little bit of story behind it, didn't you? Well, you know, I did that actually in part of, in my residency. So I'm not doing that now in terms of concussions, but I, I did uh, work with a number of NFL players. So right around 2010 or 11, when a lot of this TBI stuff was really starting to get big in the media, the NFL and the Players Association made a deal that they were going to do baseline concussion testing on everybody. And so what would happen, so the, the residency I was in had a consortium with the Cleveland Clinic. And so you know, there's like six or seven Cleveland Clinic locations in the country, and NFL players got to choose whichever one they felt like going to. And I was in Miami, you know, and everyone likes to come to Miami, as you know. And so uh, <laughs> they would fly the player, have a limo to pick them up, escort them to me and then I would you know, do their baseline and, and I'm obviously I can't tell you which players they were but you'd recognize the names uh, and it was pretty cool having conversations with them although I will tell you what was scary was that some of the players that I saw who had been in the league a while you know so these guys who were maybe 32 33 years old many of them their cognitive testing in particular their memory uh, was you know commensurate to somebody who was probably 30 to 40 years older than them Really wow. scary stuff. Yeah. Wow. I would never let my kid play football. You couldn't pay me any amount of money. to. If my kid could be the next Joe Montana in terms of skill sets, I wouldn't let him play. No universe I would let my kid touch a football, knowing what I know about, about brain trauma. I'm glad you said that as a, as a neuroscientist that knows brain trauma, because I feel like that is, the, that is an opinion that people need to hear. Or not an opinion, yeah. right? Like that's a, that's a position people need to, yeah. need, to, need to understand. Well, it's certain, I'm certainly not the only one who said this. Uh, For sure. Thing, but uh, but to, to, I think what you and I might have been talking about was that we, we, did, we were launching this new assessment that, that looks at peak performance in athletes. And so mm-hmm. we have a version of this down for kids as young as the sixth grade, all the way up to professional and Olympians, professional athletes and Olympians. And so uh, it's really cool. I'm, I, I'm proud to say I'm the only guy in the block who's got an instrument that can break down by gender, age, and sport. And so, you know, it's like if you've got a 14-year-old girl who plays soccer, I've got the only tool in town that's going to help you really figure out how to best optimize her performance. So uh, really fun, you know, and I, I like you, like I like sports a lot. And so, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, somebody once said to me, he was joking, but he was actually right. That the shorter and less athletic somebody is, the more of a sports fanatic they, they are. And, and <laughs> so, um, I'm five, eight and a half and, and reasonably uncoordinated and I, and I love my sports. So it's, it's actually really fun for me because I, I'm coordinating with you know college football and professional athletes, and uh, had some on my show, and it, it's just been a lot. It's it's been really cool. 
it's been very cool. Very cool. Um, all right. So another, another question I like to ask people is what is your, what's your favorite restaurant? And and this is one of these like value add questions, Mm -hmm. right? Like what's your favorite restaurant? What city is it in and what dish do you get there? Okay. Um, for sure. I mean, like I knew this immediately. It's Zahav in Philadelphia. This restaurant, if you've never been there, uh, it's an Israeli restaurant. And so they had a a location in Jerusalem and now they have a a location in Philly. It's their only United States location. To get into this restaurant, you need a reservation in most instances, months in advance. I was in Philly uh, for a podcast conference a number of years ago. And so I learned about it too late. And they actually, in order to get into it, like if you just want to get in and sit at the bar, they have a queue that lines up like three to four hours before the restaurant opens. And you have to wait in line to hopefully get one of the five seats. I, I got one of those five seats and I spent a really long time <laughs> on their front, front steps waiting to get into the queue. Their signature dish is one of the most amazing things I've ever had in my life. And it is, it is a lamb shoulder that has been braised for 18 hours in a pomegranate molasses reduction with chickpeas and it's layered in so many different exotic spices. I cook, like cooking's my zen. Yeah, so I, I've, I, like I ate this thing and, and it's for two, like they really only like sell it for two. And I just said, I don't care what it costs. Like I want, <laughs> I don't care how big it is. I know I'm not going to finish it. And they brought it to me and it was just like, they bring you like these little, they're like, almost like, what are those things? Like ice cube tongs, okay. you know, like a little yeah, yeah. version, a metal version of that yeah. to pull the meat off. And then they serve the, this warm hummus with it. And the pitas, you can watch them making the pita fresh right there in front of you. It's been voted best restaurant in America a couple of times. And I, I um, and the cookbook that has every recipe on the menu, like every dish on the menus in this cookbook. And I bought the cookbook. Um, you know, they, it, it tells you how to make this step-by-step and it's, uh, it's really awesome. I'm just going to throw it out there. You're the best answer to that question that I've had so far. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I am a, I love lamb. And my next, if it happens, the next thing that I have planned is a conference just outside of Philadelphia. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a point. Yeah, it's in September. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully it makes it happen. All right, man. I'm I'm super, Zahav, is that Z-A-H-A-V? That's it. Awesome. Great. Best, best answers yet. Okay. What content are you most into? This could be, what podcast you listen to the most, what show you're watching the most, what book you're really like dissecting, what person you follow. But I, I, like, to, I like to examine the, um, the effects of content on people's lives and their ability to learn from it. You know, one of, one of my uh, favorite podcasts is Hal Elrod's show. I've been privileged to have, have gone on that show. Um, Hal's been on mine a couple of times. And I just, I just, I think because we both, and we've become friends, which is really cool, we both were in this accident, like our yeah. lives were changed. Although, although he was much different, like he, he was a much nicer person than I was at the time of his accident. And, you know, just, but it still shifted his life. But he, he is the Achieve Your Goals podcast is something that I listen to often. And it, it's really good. And he's such a good human being, just one of my favorite people on this planet. So that's probably the, the podcast that I listen to a lot of. And, and I, I sometimes will because I'm a scientist, right? Like a bit of a nerd. Like I, I like Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Radio. And, and I, uh, on more than one occasion, like have heard an episode of his show and he'll talk about some kind of technology. And then um, my wife will make a face because like five days later, some package, some giant box from China's arriving <laughs> with some kind of like technology that I like to try it. And, and so, uh, but those are two really cool shows that I enjoy their content. 
That's great. That Hal Elrod story kind of is kind of an illustration of that thesis, right? Share of vulnerability with somebody since mm-hmm. you guys both went through that same thing. I imagine mm-hmm. that bonded you when you met. Yeah, it was really cool. Actually, how we met was I, I went to his conference and it was, he used to, he, he doesn't do it anymore, but he used to have an annual event in San Diego the last week, uh, like first week of December, last week, November. And I, I have a really poor sense of direction. And I knew I was screwed when they handed me a map and they're like, okay, like you, like to find the elevators and get to my ho- my room, like I needed a map. And I was like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> so I'm wandering around the hotel and I'm lost, of course. And I literally, as I'm looking at the map and looking around, I smack right into Hell Hour and I bump into him. And I was at maybe like my 40th episode of my show at that point, perhaps. And I shared with him how his book, Miracle Morning, really impacted my life and transformed me and shared a couple success stories including uh, a kid whose suicide was prevented because he heard my podcast. And I shared that with Hal and he just, you know, I asked him if he'd be my 50th guest and he just grabbed me and gave me a big hug. And, and uh, that was in 2017. So um, just really a cool, great, cool, great guy. And uh, he's got just such awesome content that I love. That's a great story, man. I'm going to, I have a couple more questions I usually get into, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I think, you know, the next one is what is something that, you were sure about in your twenties that, that you no longer believe. And I think you've kind of answered that in your yeah, story. Right? I mean, I don't think I could have a better one than that one. I mean, yeah. I, I was going to yeah. be, uh, you know, empire building and yeah. was going to have the funny thing is, you know, and I mentioned this in my Ted talk is that I'm, I'm doing better now than I, I would have ever imagined. And uh, I don't have, well, I don't have a private Island of course, but to wake up, you know, start a day. Like I often have 13, 14 hour days as do many entrepreneurs, but like my tank, like I don't feel mentally exhausted a lot of times by the end of it. You know, I mean, I just, Mm -hmm. I feel exhilarated a lot of times. Like I'll do like a West coast show. I'll get on somebody's show at seven o'clock at night or something out my time. And when it's over, I'm like, that was a great day. You know, like I just, I just feel fired up about it. And I, you know, I, I'm very lucky and I'm very lucky that the things, I think that accident was the best thing that honestly ever happened to me because uh, it it started something in me, and and now because of it, I live a life fulfilled and and very just very grateful for all of it. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. Uh, and you know, I want to thank you for for being on the show. I got one last question to ask you, but I'm gonna link all your links here, right? I got your website, Dr. Richard Schuster, The Daily Helping, Seek Your Powers, Every Kid Rocks. Your Twitter at The Daily Helping, at Every Kid Rocks. Telling people to to hashtag my daily helping Instagram the daily helping podcast. I'm going to link your Facebook. I'm going to link your LinkedIn here. But I want to give you an opportunity to promote whatever you want to promote right now, or speak out for whatever you want to speak out for right now. And- well, I want to do something if you don't mind for your audience, because uh, yeah. I, I love going on these shows and it's it's really fun for me uh, to do these. So if you're listening to this and you go to seekyourpowers.com and you put in the code connect with Pablo all one word at checkout. And you buy that powers assessment, which, you know, is really, if, if you're a working parent and trying to figure out, you know, balance in your life, um, this is the tool that does that. Actually, the tagline for this is powers puts the balance in work-life balance. For anybody listening to this show who purchases the powers with Connect with Pablo, we will give you our stress management course for COVID, which was created by myself and two other prominent doctors uh, for free. And it's a pretty cool thing. It's about 20 minutes long, but some videos and downloads and exercises you can do to really manage your stress. Right on, man. I appreciate that. Of course. And my last question is, where do you find community? Community is, 
is interesting, particularly in the post-COVID world, or I guess current co-COVID world. <laughs> um, you know, I my community is is through podcasting, and it's going to podcast conferences and it's connecting online with people that I that I meet through that. It's it's LinkedIn. What's interesting, and I talk about this a lot, and I'll, I'll leave you guys with this, is that the entrepreneurial journey is actually kind of lonely in a lot of ways. And so, you know, I, I have a 10-year marriage, happily married. Like, I love my wife. She's amazing, and she's given me a couple of really incredible kids. But she doesn't have any idea of the day-to-day stuff, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, like, I have people in my life that are much more up-to-date on what I'm doing in my business than my wife. And so, you know, what, what starts to happen when you really go down that rabbit hole of entrepreneurship is that the people who are in your community view, whether it's from a mastermind, whether it's a mentor or a coach or a fellow podcaster or somebody that you create a meaningful relationship with somebody on LinkedIn, that becomes your community. Those become the people that you reach out to for things that your perhaps your loved ones, your siblings, your, your friends from high school, they're not going to get those things. You know, if I was to say to somebody like, you know, one of my old friends from high school, like, I'm going to do this thing and it's going to get me in 150 countries and I'm going to be able to change, you know, I would be told I'm crazy, right? Most people, when, when they hear grand dreams, think that we're crazy or good for you, kid. Like, that's the best thing you'll get, right? They might pat you on the head like you're a kid. Uh, other people might just say, you're, you're totally crazy. That's stupid. But what's really cool is when you find that group of people, and I have found mine through various online communities through podcasting, that when I say something, this is my goal. Like my biggest goal, and I didn't share this on the air yet, uh, we're developing a tool for children who have been physically and sexually abused. Our big goal with this is to convert it into every language and to make it available for free to any kid in the world that's ever been abused until the end of time. But for me to be able to accomplish that goal, I'm going to need to make a ridiculous amount of money because it is expensive to do the work that we do, not only from an R&D standpoint, but from the servers and the IT, you know, like there's so much that goes into what we do. So, you know, I share that with people to, to say that like, this is what I want to do. And, you know, I just had Jack Canfield on my podcast. And one of the things that Jack said was to be an asshole, which I loved, and to, to really ask people for help. And so um, I do. But, you know, to bring it back to what, we were, what you were talking about is that I get that community from, you know, these people that are behind me saying, yeah, you know, we got your back, Dr. Richard, how, how can we help you get there? Versus, you know, maybe kids, uh, parents at my, my son's schools who, you know, if I said the same goals to them, they would roll their eyes. So, uh, but, you know, as a parting statement, just be really mindful about who you allow into your circle because the wrong people are, are going to derail your goals. Amazing, man. Amazing. I, you know, I, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to do this interview. I, I, I want to acknowledge you from, from the moment I met you, it was very clear that you are an extraordinarily talented person that is working on big things. You seem very busy. You have a lot of balls in the air. And at every moment, you've made time to communicate with me over the last two months since we met. And I don't take that lightly, right? Like everything you're saying of who you let into your circle, I, I'm very appreciative of you allowing my presence into your life at the, at the level that it's already been. And I acknowledge you for being one of you know, one of these extraordinarily talented people that has consciously made the decision to be one of the good guys, to be working on on good things, and 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 to be making an impact. And um, you know, thanks for thanks for making time, man. I really appreciate it. 
Absolutely, man. Thanks for those kind words. I hope you enjoyed that conversation right there as much as I did. Listen, Connect with Pablo is a content marketing community creation agency. The bottom line is that if you can start creating content that can give value to your customers or audience while creating strategic relationships through it, you can have a content machine that allows you to tell the story of your business through the value you are creating while gathering people together. If you're curious about that or know someone who could be, please shoot me an email at you should at connectwithpablo.com or hit me up on Instagram or LinkedIn through the profiles tagged in the show notes. If you just want a quick pick me up and some tactical advice right before walking into a room full of strangers, go to connectwithpablo.com, watch the five minute video about how to walk into a room and not feel like you're all alone and or download the little cheat sheet on how to do just that. I have a lot of my friends that I've done networking with me for a long time tell me that they love watching that thing and carrying it around when they're walking into a networking event or they're walking into a conference or sometimes even if you're just walking into a wedding and you don't know anybody, right? It has a lot of use for it. I invite you to check it out if you need it. I really hope you stick around, connect with me, and start leaning into finding value in others and feeling like you have value to give yourself. It'll make the world a better place, I promise. Until the next episode, I am Pablo Gonzalez, your Chief Executive Connector.